thousands of children are school striking for the climate on the streets of Brussels. Hundreds of thousands are doing the same all over the world. Let's flood the world of climate activists. Let's get out of the zones of convenience and join forces and start taking ourselves more seriously. Welcome to our podcast. We are historians for future, and we want to know what historians and other researchers or activists have to say about a climate emergency, our history and our future. Our aim is to provide a historical perspective on the climate and biodiversity crisis we are facing. How did we get here and where might we go? Hello, my name is Isa, and joining us today is Anne Pasek. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Cultural Studies and the School of the Environment at Trent University in Canada. Anne's research cannot be reduced to a single discipline. She feels most at home at the intersections of climate communication, the environmental humanities, and STS, science and technology studies. One of her main research goals is to find out how we think and talk about the thing called carbon. So Anne, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so let's start with a simple question. What do you care about the future? Oh, um, goodness, it's quite telling that my first thought goes to, towards my backyard garden. Um, I think um, there, there are these um, rather grandiose and important larger scales and concerns and ethical values, but I think we all have these small intimate things that we sink a lot of care time into and, and so have a kind of practice of, of worry and maintenance around their well-being. So I, I you know, hope to sort of uh, take that internal very specific example and then scale it outwards and think about the many gardens real and figurative that people are trying to grow and um, the challenges coming their way. I really like the idea of backyard futures, so. <laughs> <laughs> that image is going to stick. And um, now you are not strictly speaking a historian, but out of curiosity, um, do you think the past is important to tackle the climate crisis? Yes, um, I, I, uh, I am a historian only insofar as I study the very recent past and, and thus occasionally uh, masquerade uh, as an archival researcher uh, of very unconventional kinds of archives. But it, it's a kind of curious position, um, like, like timeline to examine because um, the things that you are studying are both no longer active, but still very much echoing through the room, right? Um, so I, I am looking at like 30 year old strategies and documents and studies that uh, have kind of echoed and inflected our broader conversations today. And so my, my sort of task is to um, understand why the sound first joined the conversation and then also why it is being sustained and, and when and where that's, that's a sort of productive or um, more like cacophonous um, effect in the overall conversation. Okay. So 
I've come across your homepage and your research motto, and um, which is, um, I think it is very intriguing, thinking about how we think about carbon. Now, before you tell us a bit more about what it is you actually do, I would like to know what carbon means. I mean, carbon is probably the most talked about chemical element in the context of the climate crisis. But for you, what exactly is carbon? And why is it so important how we talk about it? I think you're exactly right that it is so ubiquitous and yet also um, really, really hard to put our finger down on what we mean in any given context, right? Um, in the context of climate negotiations, um, finance, and renewable endeavors, right? We're often using carbon as a unit of equivalence. So it's a kind of convenient thing that we can we can multiply other factors into to kind of have a, a fungible met metric to say how much or how less a given action will impact uh, future climate trajectories. And that's often like a, a very, very useful way of getting different communities to talk to each other. Um, but I'm really interested in the nature of that talking um, because it's it's by no means a, an easy or inconsequential thing to, to think of in elements, um, right? It's very abstract and there's been this continued struggle to get people to have much of any kind of emotional or cultural attachment to this idea of carbon in itself, right? Usually where we do find those, it's more so in relation to, um, you know, resource economies who don't think about carbon, they think about oil um, or, you know, larger social movements where um, they care about toxins, they care about um, environmental racism uh, and carbon is sort of a language that inflects that conversation, but doesn't drive it. So I'm, I, my, my project in thinking about how we think about carbon is to sort of examine what that has looked like in, in recent history and, and in future uh, to sort of better understand why we failed to, to sort of make that abstraction uh, a useful thing with traction on the road of a lot of climate politics. And then also to, to think about the future of this conversation. It, it seems like we're uh, on the precipice of a really interesting and maybe consequential change um, uh, as is contemplated in a lot of climate policy and increasingly a lot of domestic measures as well. Um, we're, we're sort of at this precipice of understanding that even if we you know, turn off all of the engines of the world today, um, there's still a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, more than there should be. And so longer term trajectories, as well as the sort of mathematical solving of net zero and, and how to live through the contradictions of wanting um, you know, fair and, and equitable development in different parts of the world that haven't industrialized through fossil fuels yet and might still want to, right? How do we remove carbon from the atmosphere in addition to just producing less of it? And uh, it seems like that will be a very new and interesting chapter for, for climate politics to come. One where, um, as a lot of my informants say, like carbon is not the enemy anymore. It's instead a kind of resource um, to capture. And that means thinking about carbon uh, uh, less as a unit of financial abstraction and more as a kind of element that needs to be fixed into different material forms. And, and so also different cultural forms, right? We need to make this pitch in a way that, that lands with um, political traction in the communities that are interested in doing this work or um, might be the willing or unwilling um, uh, hosts of this work. So 
yeah, I, I, I suspect that carbon will, will sort of assert itself even more in future conversations and in different unpredictable ways. And so tracking what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past seems like a, a very necessary uh, endeavor so that we can make better choices in future, screw up a little bit less, right? Um, and certainly accelerate um, the really, really important uh, climate justice work we need to be doing. Yeah, so, um, so far, what can you say about carbon and how we talk and have talked about it? Yeah, so it's it's um, never been a constant story, right? Um, inside of uh, corporations and um, like government policy, people often think about carbon as a kind of commodity and, and one that is sort of usefully unspecific. So we look at the history of carbon trading, carbon offsets, um, and carbon trajectories of, of climate pledges, right? It really is just a number that sits in a spreadsheet. Um, and you know there, there is a sort of difficult policy of, of um, making sure those numbers are accurate and then also um, uncovering what kinds of differences are disguised by their seeming equivalents. So for um, carbon offsetting, for example, um, there, there have just been so many small and large scandals uh, in the sector over you know, the past 30, 40 years of its history. Um, it has involved uh, things like um, you know, paying for forests to be protected um, that were always already going to be, um, or that were definitely not and have since burned in fires, um, uh, making the kind of abstraction of a number in a spreadsheet, a kind of farcical thing uh, when you when you sort of zero back and, and think about um, planetary forces in the earth. Um, it's also the case that there's been extensive social conflicts with some of these projects, um, particularly in um, RED plus um, seemingly equitable, seemingly indigenous supporting efforts to protect forests in the Amazon that have led to a lot of local conflicts around land use and then also like displacements of deforestation um, just outside the envelope of these little projects. So I'm, I'm interested in um, who thinks about carbon and how carbon matters in those conversations. When people talk about carbon, they're usually thinking in the abstract, not in the specific. And there is typically no, no sort of strong regulatory pull to to hold for people to hold these these things together, right? So I, I think about how those numbers circulate uh, without a lot of accountability, and how um, you know the kind of relational model that that shows up in in carbon commodities uh, seems to require and produce that outcome, right? In a really structural way. Um, but I also study carbon in uh, climate denial communities. So I'm I'm really interested in this one community who. Uh, I call them carbon vitalists because they are, they're very convinced that um, because we exhale carbon dioxide and because carbon dioxide is, is good for plants, um, it's therefore uh, uh, immoral. Like it, it runs against the, the cause of life itself for people to regulate carbon dioxide, to consider it a pollutant and to, you know, to do so would be both like logically wrong and would invite a kind of invasive um, policing both of like industrial plants, but also of bodies, right? So for these folks, carbon is not an abstraction. It, it is instead a kind of like moral value. And this leads to a really different politics, right? Where, where folks are, you know, actively politically mobilized and, and thinking through really technical policies 
Um, but through kinds of arguments that build political coalitions that are just radically dissimilar from the ones that we find in um, two-column accounting. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's useful to think about um, what these two models have to say to each other um, and how we might, you know, think about borrowing from um, our, our sort of uh, enemies in the chessboard of climate strategy to, to maybe borrow some of those techniques and deploy them to better ends. Yeah, and... Um... Apart from the carbon vitalists, as you call them, what do you think are the most like important groups who use carbon? I mean, very abstract. Yeah, as you said, a very abstract and complex um, term to use it to argue for or against um, climate change. Yeah, I I think a lot about um, some informants that I'm following uh, in the present. Uh, who are trying to um, make arguments for, for the construction of a new carbon economy. So people who are doing carbon removal work um, in, in the majority, which can look like um, changing how agricultural practices are managed so that there's more soil sequestration, or it can involve doing things like um, producing biochar. So if you, if you burn organic matter at um, really high temperature, um, but fairly low oxygen, you, you produce a lot of charcoal, which is something that, you know, sort of holds that carbon inertly um, instead of letting it circulate through a wider carbon cycle and into the atmosphere. And it's, it's really interesting when you um, read these people's um, materials, when you talk with them, there, there is this sort of um, very, very strong care ethic there um, and a kind of enthusiasm for a sort of uh, unalienated encounter with, with what has been this sort of abstract um, thing of, of mass anxiety, uh, indifference and financialization, right? Like people are, are very, very happy to just sort of hold the carbon in their hand and be a part of um, this, this process of climate remediation writ large. So, you know, I think there's, uh, as someone who, you know, um, came up through the humanities who's very very cued to um, uh, people being less than rational creatures wanting to have narrative and moral claims to to the sort of political um, processes they participate in I, I find these examples really really quite encouraging um, because there are other ways to relate to carbon and um, that they can be quite motivating if if done on the right path Okay, I see carbon and talking about carbon is quite complex. Now, as a researcher working at the intersections of the humanities and science, science and technology studies, do you see like a great divide between science and uh, humanities? Or how exactly do you see the roles that the different disciplines play or should play? In addressing the climate crisis, yeah, it, it's interesting. I I work both in a the school of the environment, which is predominantly uh, lean scientific, although there are lots of social science and humanities colleagues that I have there, and then a cultural studies department where where many of my colleagues, most of them, come out of like a, a literature tradition, and so one set of colleagues very very invested in producing new data, um, another set of colleagues very, very interested in producing new interpretations of old data. <laughs> and it seems like, you know, we, we do need both. Um, and I, I'm happy to say that most of my interactions uh, across the two cultures of academia have been quite genial 
and that it seems like people are, um, it's no longer the case, right? That you're gonna get, um, that people will think that your work on communication narrative and value is irrelevant because we've had, you know, just decades on decades of um, the information deficit model of communication failing to get things done. I think people feel a kind of broad sense of crisis that has opened a lot of doors to consider many different um, ways to table new alternatives. And so most of my science colleagues are, are really quite happy to think about, um, you know, what might happen in the social worlds that the research uh, uh, addresses and is sort of intended to intervene in. We know that new information alone isn't enough. You need to find ways to, to make it um, have these points of traction with, with people's existing and ongoing lives. But we also know that, you know, interpretation alone uh, usually doesn't, doesn't sort of do the work of, of becoming as public as we would like, um, uh, or necessarily, you know, by itself orienting towards present and future problems. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I am, uh, uh, I, I hesitate to, to cite this for I don't know if I'm, I'm on track with my current historiography, but there's a kind of new historicism in, in, in the air, it seems, uh, in, in these climate conversations and a real interest in sort of putting our analytic tools to work for, for the demands that, that we see in front of us. Mm -hmm. And you yourself, um, what do you see your role? Are you more like a bridge between science and the humanities or is it more like different roles and you play different roles at different times? I, I suspect I take more from the sciences than I give back. Um, maybe that's specific to my own research. In my teaching, I, I end up teaching climate communication to a lot of very empirical oriented students. Um, and so hopefully give them some useful tools to, to be better interveners in public debate. Um, but for the book project that I'm working on, my, my aims are uh, a little more theoretical, uh, right? I, I want to sort of provide a, an, an account of, um, you know, useful lessons learned from this history, but also um, maybe a more theoretical vocabulary for how we can think about um, the difficulty of thinking with elements, right? Uh, carbon is tricky because it, if it is your object of research, it, it is never the same object, right? It could be a rock, it could be uh, in the atmosphere, it could be in petroleum, and so um, in following it around, you, you learn a lot about how people have vernacular materialisms in, in their sort of shorthands, in their social movements, and the limits and, and opportunities that all of those things present, um, as well as, uh, you know, sort of different relational models that seem to pop up in these conversations, right? Is carbon something that we should think about as, you know, um, with no relation to place, just circulating in a common atmosphere and therefore something that we can, you know, put up and pull down um, anywhere in the world um, at, at our leisure? Or is it something that, you know, ties us to place, ties us to communities and ties us to each other? Um, time will tell. <laughs> Okay, so I've definitely learned um, data and understanding carbon as a chemical element is, is one thing, but it's equally important to think about how we talk about it, how we see it, and, um, and that creates different kinds of narratives that can be used in, in very different ways. Now, unfortunately, I've got a last question for you. And um, the thing is, you're also a researcher who wants to get 
academics thinking about their role in creating a greener and a more inclusive academia. So what are your thoughts on this and how should we go about doing low carbon research? Yes, so this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, um, but also one that quite happily I'm, I'm developing in conversation with a, a wider research group. So we are the, uh, if you go to lowcarbonmethods.com, uh, you can find out more about our research group where we're a bunch of people thinking about how climate change will not only change what we study, but also how we study, right? If we take serious the, the sort of prospects and need for an energy transition, it seems really useful to think about what that energy transition will look like in our day-to-day -day working lives, as well as the research methods um, that we kind of assume to be an unchanging thing, but but might might at their, their core um, be full of the wrong kind of carbon, right? And, and might need some, some twisting. So uh, that is a conversation that will look very different in, in uh, different disciplinary fields, but um, the benefit of thinking together is that you get that kind of um, networked perspective across different departments and, and universities. And there's also some, some commonalities, right? Um, so we know that we need to get on a lot less planes and there are uh, several inventive ways to have better online conferences, to do archival research at a distance, to have a kind of um, more accountable, multi-authored kind of uh, fieldwork practice that um, is embedded and, and employs and involves and uh, gives authorship credit to local informants, um, even if you yourself aren't local to that place. So there's there's a lot on the table that's that's interesting and worth exploring. And I think it's really useful for us to, to do so before the problem kind of is thrust upon us by you know some uh, interesting new tax on, on jet fuel, for example. And then also because it helps us imagine um, an energy future that we want for academia, right? Not one where we're just sort of through austerity uh, and, and strict regulatory measures flying less, but one where flying less helps us make different kinds of communities that we, we want, um, that helps uh, lessen the load on our precarious uh, colleagues who you know, um, don't come by tra travel funding easy and might therefore lead to a more diverse and interesting set of scholars and conversations. So thinking about that connection between equity and uh, climate is an exciting one and, and one that I hope uh, uh, many folks are, are intrigued by. Mm -hmm.